Welcome, and uh, it's really nice to be here with you all tonight. Uh, this is my last teaching uh, night in LA. It's been a fun five days. I think it's the first time I've come to LA and like done something every day. So uh, for the last five days, and so it's been kind of fun. <laughs> um, so like Eric said, uh, we'll sit a little bit. Um, before we sit, um, and, I'll, and I'll guide us into some practice as well. And, and what I'll guide will also be connected to the topic tonight of, of working with uh, emotions in a skillful way. Um, but before I do that, what I did want to say is today's actually a very special day in the Buddhist calendar, and I didn't realize it uh, <laughs> until recently. So today is actually the uh, full moon day in which we celebrate in this time of the year uh, the Buddha's uh, birth, uh, enlightenment, and um, parinirvana, or death. And we celebrate all three of them today. Um, it's actually in the Tibetan tradition and the, I think Theravada tradition is today or tomorrow or something like that. So um, it feels extra special for me to be able to sit with all, with all of you and share the Dharma and come together and practice. And um, the reason I also say that before we practice is to keep that in mind uh, in our intention here, uh, what that might mean for us, uh, whether we have some kind of connection with Buddhist practice or we don't. I'll be talking a little bit about the Buddha and his life um, after we sit. But essentially, uh, what I want to point out here is uh, the Buddha, besides being a historical figure and the founder of, of the Buddhist tradition, um, is also a symbolic representation and uh, an image for all of us to recognize um, our own nature, our own qualities that, whether they're something obvious that we can see and connect with right now or something hidden that uh, will eventually come out as we practice. So what, so what we can do, I think, is connect with that idea, right? In, in the sense, for some of us, that's going to be a very distant idea. And for some of us, it's going to be a little closer and maybe uh, more available. But this basic idea or principle is that we all have the capacity and potential for awakening, for not only happiness, but for, uh, from a Buddhist perspective, the elimination of pain, the elimination of suffering, yeah, for ourselves, and then able to benefit and help others uh, with more wise compassion. And so I try to wake up and remember this every day. This is one of the things that fundamentally um, I reflect on because we have an abundance, uh, at least in my experience, of kind of the antithesis to that, which is that we are not worthy. We are just this kind of uh, meat suit walking around that just dies, right? And, and from a Buddhist perspective, that couldn't be farther from the actual reality, right? Meaning, of course, we have this, this body that, that that gets sick, ages, and dies eventually. But uh, the actual nature underneath, that which moves from experience to experience, um, is completely free when we're able to recognize that and bring that potential out, even if it doesn't feel like that right now. A lot of times what we say is we say this is similar to a window and, and the, the kind of windowness of that, the limpidity or the clarity of that window, the reflective quality of that window versus the dirt that can get caked on that window, yeah? So here we're saying, you are not the dirt, <laughs> right? In the sense of whatever we connect with as uh, things we may lack or things we may like about ourselves or whatever that is from a Buddhist perspective, we're much more than that, yeah? But those are still things that are happening to us. So tonight, what I want to focus on is See, now I'm launching to the talk. That's a bad idea. I should have waited. But tonight what I wanted to focus on was, was primarily how we work with that dirt, 
you know, how we work with the, the mud of life. You know, we have this, some of you have probably heard this analogy of uh, uh, a lotus, you know, as it emerges from the mud. And in connection with that mud, a lo the lotus can grow, right? There's also the, the sort of um, mm, not only reflection, but kind of contrast of the lotus to the mud, right? And so tonight we're going to kind of more be focusing on how we work with all the kinds of mud as it shows up in our life, all of those moments we'd rather not deal with, right? All of the uncomfort that uh, we'd rather avoid. And actually, socially and culturally, we have a lot of ways to avoid them. But the problem is they, it doesn't really work, right? It just creates another little problem for us. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on. Um, but until then, <laughs> we'll practice a little bit. So... Just finding a seat and a posture that's relaxed yet alert. Just letting our back become a little bit aligned and straight. We're just going to spend a moment, and we'll practice for about 30 minutes just to give you a heads up. So just for a moment, we're going to just let our attention and awareness just find the feeling of our feet, legs, sit bones, touching the chair and ground beneath us. And I just want to invite you into that experience, inviting you into that raw sensation. Just coming into whatever is happening right now for you. Here we don't have to invite in an experience that's not there. We also don't have to reject or push away one we don't like. So here, I want to invite you with a curiosity. Can we let be with whatever is arising for us? Whether that's something pleasant, unpleasant, or just neutral. And we let be with that while our bodies are connected to the earth beneath us. Just letting our feet, legs, ground us down into this earth we all walk upon and share, the earth we arise from and the earth we go back to. So I like to start with this because often when we just move from doing one thing right into meditating, it sort of becomes this movement or job of doing over and over without just giving some space and allowance for whatever may be coming up for us, whatever we may need to touch in with here and now. So there's a gentle acknowledging here, just a sense of spacious allowing. So we feel, we become aware, we let be and we just wait. 
this is kind of like showing up after a long day of work, taking off your shoes and coat, sitting on the couch, but instead of zoning out, we're zoning in. We'll simultaneously just letting be and letting relaxation come on its own, but we're not bringing the relaxation in. If we know how to let be, just allow whatever's there, whatever sensations in the body, whatever feelings, emotions, things untie themselves. And we find a new, deeper kind of relaxation. It's not always craving the relaxation. That's not coming from clinging and trying to grab at it, trying to fight the non-relaxation or fight the stress. So here I want to really want to invite you to drop that fight if that's happening for you right now and just be. So from here, just letting our tension, our awareness, just familiarize with the body and come into, a bo come into the body for a few moments. We're going to connect with the breath and the body as our main practice for this session, the next 20 minutes. So breathing in and out through the nose in connection with the ground beneath us in connection with our body. Just want to invite you to become aware of the breath as we breathe up through the earth, filling our abdomen and belly. And releasing, breathing out, and letting that same life-giving air find its way back down, grounding us back down into the earth below. So breathing in, we breathe up through the legs, filling the belly like a balloon, letting the belly expand and extend. And breathing out, we let the belly contract letting that life-giving energy flow back down the legs and into the earth below, 
grounding us back down. So our job here is to stay curious about the breath and the body. Just let that breath connect to the earth below, connect to this deep abdominal breathing in a very relaxed, gentle way. And we just simply become aware of that process, which means we just try to know that process. So as we know this, there's no need to push out sound, sight, smell, taste, or touch. There's also no need to reject the thinking mind. We just simply become aware of the thinking mind. We become aware of any sounds around us. We also can know them. And when we notice we've been hooked by a thought, we've been hooked by something in our surroundings, and we're no longer aware of the breath, we use that as a tool to grow our capacity of present moment awareness, to grow our muscle of present moment awareness. And we find the breath once again in the body. So there is no good or bad practitioner here. There is no certain state, a way of abiding or feeling that you need to attain or find. We're actually not seeking calmness in this practice. Those calmness can arise. We're not seeking agitation or stress or frustration. Those stress can arise. What we are seeking is awareness. with the breath as our anchor into nowness. And we just simply maintain that nowness, becoming aware of the breath, aware when we're losing the breath. So we'll practice like this.
<clears throat> so in the next few breaths, we're just going to let our attention and awareness to the breath, just gently let be coming back to a presence of our feet touching the ground beneath us, of a presence of our body as a whole. So awareness continues, the knowing continues. We just simply let go of using the breath as an anchor for that awareness. And we'll just slowly come back to the place we started, just coming to let be again within the body. Here we don't lose awareness completely, but we do just gently let be let go of the practice. Come into a spacious allowing of whatever is arising for us, whether that's something pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, whether that's something we want to feel or don't want to feel. Here we choose to feel And we choose to bring awareness to that. Just this very gentle knowing quality. Devoid of having to analyze or figure out exactly what's going on. Just being with it. And we're practicing that. Just coming home into the body, <clears throat> coming home into our present moment experience. Maybe some of you are noticing a shift from the practice, having the breath, having connected with the breath, perhaps it helped to regulate the nervous system a little bit. Perhaps it just brought us into the body, into nowness. So as we shift into our phase of the evening, which is going to be more about listening and learning, as well as some dialogue, the awareness we've been cultivating in this practice doesn't go to waste, gets immediately applied in what we call the post-meditation, which means we still place a very gentle, relaxed attention and awareness, this time on our process of contemplation and listening. And as I usually approach a Dharma talk, whether I'm listening or giving it, the general advice of trying to listen with fresh ears, trying to listen 
like a small child looks at paintings in a temple with a sense of openness, non-bias, but yet just a very gentle critique or healthy kind of skepticism, asking, hmm, I wonder if that's true. This is where our contemplation spins from as we listen and reflect on the Dharma. When you're ready, feel free to open your eyes, coming back into the room. Everybody get a good nap? <laughs> At least we get a good nap. I think that's what, med- you know, very least meditation provides a good nap. <laughs> So, um, just before I start, I, I, I forgot one piece. I usually like to generate um, just a collective intention, a communal intention in the group as we're sort of engaging in this kind of practice, uh, listening, reflection, and meditation. And so, um, if you don't mind, I'll have you close your eyes once again. Sorry about that. <laughs> my bad, as we say in my generation. <laughs> and we're just going to connect again just briefly with the body. Hope it's a familiar home for you at this point. And just reflecting very gently on maybe some of the reasons we came tonight, some of our intentions as well as maybe hidden motivations or unconscious motivations. We're going to merge those now with a motivation of opening the heart with our own interest and the interest of others in mind and how those connect and can commune and become interdependent. So here, reflecting on just as we ourselves wish for happiness and wish to avoid pain, suffering, dissatisfaction, uncomfort, so do all others. Our pursuit of well-being in our life, happiness, joy, possibly even enlightenment if we want that. This is something all other beings have a wish for and a connection to, in the sense that we can see in our own behavior and the behavior of others, the choices we make are to find happiness, are to avoid suffering, and there's nothing wrong with that. So here we open the heart not just to what we may learn, reflect on, bring into practice tonight for ourself, for our own benefit, but also that that may come out more and more as we meet the world and we grow our compassionate stance in the world through practice, through encountering the Buddha Dharma. And so as our light grows internally, may that light shine brighter and brighter, bringing more benefit, compassion, care into the world. And eventually, if we so wish, awakening within the context of the teachings we're going to talk about tonight. So just feeling that in your heart, let that become a spacious experience, a tender warmth just at the depth of your being.
Thank you. <laughs> so, what I thought we'd do is kind of, I'll present some, some, some of the topic for tonight and then we can kind of engage with each other, maybe discuss, do a little bit of Q&A. Um, I find often that, uh, you know, these exchanges for me aren't just about like talking at people or sort of imparting information. Uh, as we live in like a very extensive information age these days and we're kind of culturally and socially uh, educated to kind of be like kind of like a computer <laughs> just processing information taking in information I don't think sometimes information is so useful it's sort of like the first step and then here in this context of what I'm teaching on that information has to be connected into uh, not only a, an action or a movement but it has to be connected into real chewing is what I call it you know chewing like like a cow chewing grass you know they do it really slowly and kind of like, you know, it, it almost feels like they're meditating when you look at them, right? They're chewing, chewing, chewing. So what I'm really interested in um, is if any of this you find useful, uh, interesting, you get curious about it, please chew on it. You're welcome to chew on it here as you're listening. You're welcome to take it home and continue to chew on it. If it's not useful for you, then go chew on something else, right? <laughs> go chew on chocolate, go chew on whatever else you want, right? And so this chewing is, is also connected for me into a process of keeping a, a set of open questions in my life, of sort of a, a pervasive curiosity that, of course, my Buddhist uh, learning, education, and path informs, but um, also the world informs as we bring that into reflection with others, reflection with our environment. And so here our environment can also become a teacher obviously right our relationships can become a teacher our families our friends our partners uh the people we dislike can also become teachers right in this sense but they become teachers based off of this chewing and the open questions we bring to those relationships the curiosity and um maybe the the, the reference points of where the buddhist path might meet that if you're interested in, in bringing the buddhist path in um so, <laughs> this being the, the, the birth, death, and, and enlightenment day of the Buddha, I, I doubt those all happen on the same day, but nonetheless, we celebrate them all on the same day in the, in the Buddhist tradition. Um, I thought I'd kind of introduce our topic by talking a little bit about the Buddha's life. Um, I'm sure like a majority of you are familiar with the Buddha's life to a certain extent, or, or maybe some of you. And um, so I'm not going to go too much into detail, and you can go read online or you know, go to Wikipedia <laughs> or pick up a book on the Buddha's life. Um, I look at the Buddha's life from his sort of uh, life as a prince, you know, uh, supposedly in, in a, in a uh, uh, kingdom or rich, rich family to losing interest in that and, and seeking out a, a life of a renunciate, a life of a meditator, um, to eventually finding awakening uh, as he sort of got fed up with the extremes of materialism and sort of denial or nihilism and came to what we call the middle way uh, in his own realization under a Bodhi tree. And then, of course, his life as a teacher and sage uh, teaching the Dharma. I, I look at this um, as a, uh, a wonderful, positive uh, uh, myth to work with, right? And myth is kind of a strong word, and I'm taking this more from the kind of 
Jungian perspective, that myth doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means it became more than what it, what it historically maybe was, right? Meaning it takes on more meaning than maybe what it originally had. But it didn't mean it didn't happen, yeah? And so why I use the word myth, also earlier I used this word symbolic, because this, is a, a, this story is a representation for our own life and our own path, so we choose it. Our sort of what I tend to call a radical transformation yeah? uh, of what the Buddha went through, of a life of opulence, a life of, a life of uh, you know, every need fulfilled, and no want, yet thirsty and, and, and a, a real hollowness inside uh, that he expressed that just couldn't be contained. And even though his father tried to you know, hide him from uh, uh, suffering, he still, it still found him, right? And, and to me personally, this is extremely relatable in my life as I've tried everything in, po- <laughs> in my control to try to avoid suffering, be that, you know, turning off uh, a new story uh, that's disturbing me or numbing out anxiety or overeating to, you know, uh, 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 fulfill some kind of hollowness inside or validation, right? So for me, it's, it, it's connected in this way of, of, of a seeking, but seeking things that are miring me more, or were miring me more in, in, in the problem, right? And so the Buddha's life, we see he, he, eventually he became sort of fed up with that. And that seeking turned into a real uh, dis, kind of dissatisfaction and, um, mm, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't think it's quite rejection. It's like a disillusion. That's the word I'm looking for. Like a disillusionment, yeah, with the status quo. And not just the status quo of like society and all that. The status quo of his relationship to that, right? His relationship to everything around him. That from a, a normal point of view or from like an uh, uh, average social point of view would, would seem, oh, like what's your problem, right? And so we see him, you know, go through this process of seeking out Happiness, basically. Seeking out where can I find this? Because it's not here. It's not in sort of opulence and, and no matter how many material things I get, no matter how much pleasure I get, it's like a thirsty person drinking salt water. It, it just makes me more thirsty. And coming to that conclusion, you know, he then went to the other extreme of sort of denial. You know, and, and I often think, um, I guess I'm kind of like Generation X. I'm not a millennial, but... Yeah, thankfully, but um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm like uh, the, in in between millennial Gen X because I'm born in 1980. So they say that in those four years, there's someone's trying to make a new generation, which uh, all of us hate, called Xennials or something like that, <laughs> where people who uh, who have had access, like didn't grow up with with technology, but we had access to it at a fairly young age, like maybe like 10 or so. So kind of grew up with it. But anyways, so I noticed partly in my generation, and this may be my judgment, uh, most things are, uh, <laughs> is uh, there's this kind of sense of like um, materialism and nihilism coexisting in the same ideology, which is kind of strange, you know, this, this idea that like um, things uh, like grasping at, at, at materiality, grasping at the eternalism of that, yet feeling a hollowness and kind of nothingness and a pointlessness to it all, right, at the same time which is quite sad, but it's also kind of funny to me that those can be held <laughs> in, the same, in the same kind of uh, mind, not the same exact mind state, but similar. 
And so, you know, this, this also strikes me of, of what the Buddha went through, of these two extremes of materialism and then on the other side, denial of, uh, of, uh, of the body, denial of that um, we can sort of control or force our way into happiness or force our way into enlightenment in his case, right? And eventually he found that doesn't work either, right? We have the story of finally someone, the myth of, of uh, someone giving him milk, you know? It was supposedly milk from 100 cows or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, there's a lot of symbology hidden in there. And then he drank it and then decided, okay, I'm at, this isn't working. I'm going to go take the middle way, right? And what, what did he do? He looked at the mind, right? He turned with awareness instead of turning out, instead of turning to, towards, you know, religious extremism and religious austerity, he turned inwards to look at the mind. And eventually vowing to sit beneath a Bodhi tree and vowing not to get up until he achieved awakening, he did that. And he looked at the mind until the mind's nature, which was already there, fully came out, right? So, to me, this is sort of, again, an example of something that not only one person could do, not only uh, an Indian man living 2,600 years ago could do, it's what any human being can do with the right effort and conditions, right? So, once the Buddha was awakened, um, he kind of sat there, more or less, you know? And I don't think he sat there out of selfishness. I think he sat there because he truly recognized the nature of how things are. And we sometimes have this expression of that in, 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 in Buddhism of uh, um, expressing the nature of reality as like a blind, deaf, mute trying to explain the, the taste of sugar to someone, right? So, <laughs> so you, you, know, you can see the conundrum here, right? So I think the Buddha just sat. And then finally he was requested to teach, right? For those of you who've heard the story, he was requested to teach and he was requested three times. And so that's why sometimes we have this form, formality in Buddhism that you're not supposed to teach unless you're requested three times. For me, all it takes is a Facebook friend, uh, you gotta friend me there, an Instagram follow and then an email. And then, then you got me. So I consider that three times. Yeah. So, so anyways, um, I'm a little loose, if you know what I mean, yeah, Pr promiscuous as a teacher. So, uh, so anyways, um, so when the Buddha was requested, he basically said no. But as he said no, uh, the first time, right, he, he expressed the qualities of, of what his enlightened realization was, of what awakening truly was. And he called it something luminous, peaceful, beyond, constru beyond constructs, unconditioned, right? And, and so he was describing not just a nihilism, not just a nothingness, because all his suffering had fallen away. It was eliminated. Yet there was this luminosity. There was this peacefulness. There was this beyond constructs, unconditioned. So there was an expression, right? And then finally, uh, on the third time, he said, okay, I'll give it a shot, right? And, it, and basically, his, his statement was, I don't think people are going to understand this. Again, it's like, uh, like a deaf mute trying to explain the taste of sugar, right? And so his first teaching, as, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, was to those first, his, his ascetic partners, the, the five disciples who um, rejected him when he drank that milk, right? And 
when they saw him at this point, they said, oh, I think this guy's got something, <laughs> you know? He looks a little different, you know? There's like a glow and all that, right? <laughs> We'd say. So, and then the, the Buddha taught them the Four Noble Truths, right? So I'm sure you all are familiar with the Four Noble Truths. Um, and to me, I think there's a big reason why this was the first teaching. Uh, to me, this really points out the entire, what we call, we can encapsulate it in what we call the view meditation and conduct of Buddhism. View meaning something, uh, an idea we're trying to get used to, right? Meditation meaning like actually engaging and getting used to that view. Like for instance, uh, the idea of like, okay, I need to take a new uh, road to work, right? So that's an idea. Then we are driving on that, so we're getting used to it, right? And then the contact, conduct of having obtained that, getting to work, right? So we have this framework. And so really the Four Noble Truths uh, encapsulate this within the, the first truth of uh, bearing witness to suffering, basically to know suffering. The Buddha really asked us, and not just obvious suffering, I think that wasn't really what he was talking about, though it's included. Because, you know, we all know that we, you know, we get aches and pains, we don't feel good, we get in moods that are not so nice. Uh, we know we age, we get sick, we eventually have to die, right? We know there's suffering. But what he was referring to was a little more subtle than that, which possibly I'll get into. <laughs> we'll see how much time there is. Then, not only did he point that out, he pointed out, okay, well, there's a cause to that, right? In the second noble truth. And this is mainly what we're going to be focusing on tonight. The cause being habitual patterns and uh, um, an over-reliance on emotions that are not reliable, right? Now, I'm not talking about emotions like compassion and things like that. I'm talking about emotions like when we get caught up in something and a lot of craving is happening or we have a lot of aversion to something and immediately we reject based off of our own bias and limiting belief, right? So he said these are the primary causes of our suffering, right? Then he said knowing the primary causes of the suffering, if you get used to, again, working with those in a new way and, uh, and reducing and then eventually eliminating those, you can achieve this third noble truth of elimination of suffering, right? And we do that based on the fourth noble truth of the path. Basically, the conduct, the stance we bring out into the world, what I call our compassionate stance we're, gro we're growing through avoiding things that are harmful to ourselves and others. And then engaging in a process of cultivating awareness, cultivating, like I said, that mind that, look, that, uh, yeah, that, mind that looks towards as opposed to out projecting all the time. We look into who is the projector, right? It's essentially what we're doing. And then, uh, so stabilizing that awareness to do that, and then actually doing that, looking towards, trying to see the projector, projector uh, inside for what it is, right? As what we usually call dreamlike or illusory-like. So these are the three kind of main pillars of the Dharma of ethics, concentration or, or stabilization of awareness or samadhi and vipassana or, or, or I should say uh, praj, panya or prajna of wisdom, yeah? So, so here I think I've reflected a lot on this a lot because I honestly feel like for a long time it was really tough for me to reflect on the first noble truth. It was sort of like, mm, it's painful. It's not... Like, who the hell wants to reflect on suffering? We have so much of it and so much, like, awareness of it because we have a, such an overwhelm of media these days. And so it's sort of like we all know, 
you know, the suffering, but yet we turn away, right? We all know uh, 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 the capacity of what we're capable of as human beings and, and in the animal kingdom and all kinds of stuff, all the, all the horrors that are possible. We all know that, yeah? Yet it's hard to turn towards. It's hard to look. It's painful. And here I think mainly what the Buddha is asking us to do is to meet our own experience, right? Which is sometimes the hardest. It almost feels like if I'm going to meet my pain, if I'm going to meet my experience, my dissatisfaction, my uh, raw emotions, uh, the pain I experience in my life, it almost feels like if I do that, it's going to get worse, right? Sometimes it feels like that. So then our, our, con our conditioning, our habit is then to turn away, right? So the first thing the Buddha is asking is to turn towards. And again, I don't think it's a turning towards or an honesty to look in order to punish ourselves or to, you know, make life worse or to just, uh, uh, just remain stuck in this perpetual depressed thing. I, I think sometimes Buddhism gets this bad rap of like, oh yeah, it just talks about suffering all the time, you know, or like, you're just supposed to look at that. No, no, not at all. It's sort of like, it's very similar to like, if, if we're sick and, and we have some subtle sickness and until a doctor points it out, we just, you know, like right now I'm doing this grain-free, dairy-free, you know, thing like that's trendy, right? I didn't know how much inflammation I had in my body until I stopped, you know, the inflammation went away, right? Because of not being triggered by certain foods. So it's like that. So sometimes until we apply something or until we look, we can't see fully. And so really um, what I wanted to say here, if my note will open, <laughs> is a process of meeting our experience with kindness. So it's actually, it's a different way to look at this first noble truth as of knowing suffering, is the Buddha's asking us to look with a sense of compassion and kindness, right? The kindness here is in the looking. The kindness is in the honesty. And that sounds strange in a way, because it seems like it's more kind to do something where we don't have to feel bad, right? Or we don't have to feel suffering or pain. But like I said, it seems like, and you can decide for yourself, this is the chewing I'm asking you to do. It seems like the more we avoid, the worse the pain gets often, right? I'm not just talking about physical pain. I'm talking about like all the emotions around that, right? It just com compacts and compacts and compacts, right? And becomes exponential. So in relationship to these, this first truth and the second truth of, of what the cause of the suffering is, the first step is meeting ourselves and meeting our emotions and meeting our experience where it is and as it is, right? Having the tools to do that. Now, I will say, this has to be, be done very carefully, right? Because, you know, we often do, we're, we're losing the tools for this socially and communally. Meaning, when we, when we live in and are conditioned by a society that's hyper-individualistic, it's extremely difficult to hold spaces for ourselves when things are coming at us or when we're going through something because there's no support system or there's very little support system. I don't know about you, but at times it's felt like, like every bad news I hear, it feels like it's literally on my shoulders and it's my responsibility. You know, and I, I have friends who feel the same way. And it's subtle. It's not like we would believe that intellectually. That's a stupid, uh, sorry, not stupid, but it's, a, it's not a really, it's, it's obvious that's not the case, right? Intellectually. But we feel it sometimes. It feels like that in the body. It feels like that in the spirit. And so, 
And so the first step here, I think, is finding the tools of how to come into a process of kindness, non-judgment, and being able to bear witness more and more. And obviously, you all are meditators, so you've already come into, into some of the tools of how to do this, right? But I really want to emphasize uh, specifically within the meditation uh, some specific tools. So how do we meet ourselves with kindness? How do we meet our emotions with kindness? The first step is cultivating awareness, right? Now, this is really different than cultivating calmness because calmness is a state. Calmness is an experience that is useful sometimes, right? But calmness is also fleeting. It comes and goes. When you get up from your wonderful beach meditation on Redondo Beach, no offense, <laughs> you know, and you got to go to work and uh, you're, you're, you know, the, 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 your neighbor at work who's kind of a dick to you is, is there, right? If that's, your, if that's what's happening to you. It's real, you know? Suddenly your calmness is all gone, right? So it's not very sustainable in the long term. It's kind of useful like in, in the short term like a nap, you know? <laughs> in the sense that like when we're tired, we just take a little nap and then it's all good and then we keep going. We have some energy, right? Or, or food. And I think uh, in a way calmness is a really good stepping stone for some of us because we have just such a dearth of it, right? And, and we need it. We're stressed. But if we only get stuck there, then uh, we're always going to remain in this kind of like thirsty, thirsty person mode, drinking salt water again and again and again. And then meditation also can remain like that again. No, again, sorry, I don't mean to offend or be kind of too direct. I'm, I'm a little bit of a direct person. But um, you have to look for yourself and check. I I'm personally looking for myself as well. I'm not perfect. You know, I'm, I'm also checking here. What am I, what's my intention when I sit down to practice? What's going on here? What do I want out of this, right? So uh, cultivating awareness now. Awareness is much different than calmness, right? Awareness is a quality of the mind that is, in, is innate. It's something we have, we're born with. It's not something we have to buy or bring in from the outside. It's not something I'm going to give you or the Buddha is going to give you or you get it inside LA, <laughs> right? Um, it's there. It's just simply, uh, for some of us, it's, it's not as pronounced, you know? It's, 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 a, it's a muscle we haven't grown or trained, right? But it's still a muscle that's there. So when we cultivate awareness, it's a process of strengthening that muscle. It's a process of growing our capacity to use it, right? And that is essentially what meditation is, right? We're working with connecting with awareness first, getting clear on what that is, which can take some time, and then trying to sustain or maintain that awareness. That's the first step for a lot of us, right? So, just to give you a clue, if I ask you, know the feeling in your feet right now, kind of like what we did earlier. We can keep looking at each other and smile, and then while we're doing that, know the feet, know the feeling in the feet, right? Are you doing it? Yeah? That's awareness, right? So right there, not the feeling, but our capacity to know, our capacity to be aware of the feeling in the feet is the awareness, this quality of mind, right? And so when we sit down to practice, when we are at work, when we're in our car, this is something we don't need a fancy cushion for, we don't need, we don't need the breath for. This is something we can cultivate all day long, anywhere. Cultivating awareness of sound, cultivating awareness of body, feeling, walking, right? That's why we have things like walking meditation, things like that. So the breath is a really good start because it's a little more obvious for us. Ah, okay, this is what I'm 
connecting the awareness to and training it, right? And so formal practice with that is really helpful. But eventually we have to bring it out into the world. Hmm, I wonder what it's like to just be aware of the waves crashing if I'm on the beach, just being aware of that. Or aware of my neighbor yelling, <laughs> you know? We can practice with not so fun things too. I practice with the New York subway all the time. It's really hard because it sounds like crap. <laughs> it's like the most annoying screeching sound, right? Or with a crying baby, right? How to being aware of that or whatever it is. So sometimes we have to challenge ourselves a little bit. And so awareness is this first step. And then here, uh, when it comes to kindness in the sense of meeting our suffering with kindness, meeting our emotions with kindness, it's a process of then connecting that awareness into the body, right? So again, something uh, from my own life that maybe you we have in common, I'm not sure, is for most of my life, I was very, very good at connecting to a cognitive approach to, to an emotion. Meaning, I could know what that emotion is, especially when I first met the Dharma, you know, and I learned, oh, this is anger. I can label this is anger, this is attachment, blah, 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 right? Then I could know, okay, this is that. But I didn't know how to feel it. I didn't know how to meet that with kindness, how to just let be in the body with something. It was always a process of analysis. And we're not all like this, you know. Uh, depends on our background and conditioning and, and things like that. But um, for me personally, this was my burden to bear, you know, for, for a lot of years of practice and meditation and trying to engage this process of meeting myself with kindness, meeting my emotions and habits with kindness. And so merely a cognitive approach is a good first step, but it doesn't bring it all the way because there's a large part missing in what we're bearing witness to, which is we're cutting off from the body. We're cutting off from the feeling in the body, right? And so generally this isn't, it's one of the foundations of mindfulness, but it's something that you don't find a lot of explicit material in in traditional Buddhism because it's coming from cultures that already had a connection to this, more or less, where the cognitive is connected in the feeling world and and, and some of the people in these cultures did not have to always use the thinking mind to figure out their environment or their, their experience. Whereas socially I've noticed, you know, again, this is from some of you free to chew on, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, we're primarily educated in cognitive understanding and how to see the world and, and, and understand the world through the thinking mind. So that becomes a, 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 like, again, like it's a little bit, uh, it's weighed heavily in one direction, right? So, one of, our, one of our steps here is to kind of balance that out a little bit, coming into the body, very similar to the practice we did at the beginning, which is just to know the feeling in the body, know the emotion we're experiencing. We don't have to analyze it. We don't have to figure it out. We don't have to think, where did this come from? I wonder if it's my husband's fault. <laughs> Probably was your husband's fault. Um, or whatever, right? <laughs> we can just know it and be with it. And this is this kindness of allowing that I was describing in the beginning of our practice, right? It's a meeting place for a lot of us to start to come into new types of reference points in the world, new types of ways of working with emotion. Now, it's all good to be able to have a good cognitive understanding of emotion. That's really helpful. Um, being able to label and name and talk about our emotions, it's a skill and it's, and it's, and it's, it's useful. But we also have this whole rich world in the body of the feeling world that is not the thinking world, right? 
It's a whole rich world of this. And so what I want to do now, um, and then we'll jump into some discussion, is just introduce a brief practice for this. We kind of did a little bit of it before, but I'll, I'll, I'll build off of that now. Because I could talk about this, and we can intellectualize about what this might mean to connect with the feeling, but I'd rather you see it directly. Okay? So just finding a posture that's alert yet relaxed. Feel free to close your eyes or open them, whatever feels comfortable to you. And again, we'll just let our attention and awareness just fall into a feeling of our feet as they touch the ground beneath us. Just starting to connect with the raw sensation in the body, just the raw feeling in the body. And now we're going to form um, a very specific intention for this practice. And it's okay wherever you're at. And if this is a little too, if this isn't something you can do right now or you're not in the mood for, it's fine. You can just listen as well. Try it another time. But our intention here we're going to cultivate is to drop into the body, drop the walls we put up around our feelings. And to move into a space of allowing. So for those of us who have a trauma history, just be very gentle in this. You don't have to push. It may not be the right time for you as well. But if you feel confident you'd like to try this, we're going to form this intention of not blocking anything. Just becoming aware and feeling the feeling in the body, whatever that may be for you. Anything here is allowed. There's no right or wrong, bad or good. And we bring in the principles and the curiosity of not rejecting or avoiding something that's painful, not running from something that comes up, And most of all, we're not going to apply any agenda to fix something. So within this intention, we're also dropping an intention to fix ourselves. I like to say these days to my students and the one-to-one -one mentees I work with, we're not a self-improvement project. And often we treat ourselves as if we are. So I really want to invite you here to drop those walls and drop an agenda of a need to do, be, or fix anything. We simply drop into our body and feel, starting with maybe the feeling in the belly. For me, this is where a lot of anxiety tends to arise, arising as a buzz in the body. So if you have something similar or something else happening for you, can you meet that with the kindness of non-judgment and with awareness? 
So there's a difference here as we're feeling with awareness. So instead of our normal non-awareness, that's the case for us, we usually just get hijacked by whatever we're feeling. Here, we're not getting hijacked by it, but we're also not dissociating. We're fully feeling and being. And we just rest and remain there, and we wait. If there's something uncomfortable that's up for us right now, we just bring a lot of kindness to that in the sense of non-judgment. And if there's not so much up for us right now, that's okay. Just leave this open space of allowing, non-judgment, and awareness of the feeling in the body. Not just the raw feeling on top of the skin or the sense of touch, but more the energies that moving that are moving throughout the body. And we don't have to name or label it. We don't have to analyze it or figure it out. We're really dropping the thinking mind into the body and feeling. And we wait, whether we're touching something like numbness, we just feel the numbness and wait with it. Or touching something uncomfortable or touching something pleasant, that's okay too. Just being with whatever's there. If it's pleasant, it can come or go at any time. We don't have to have it continue. We're dropping our agenda around it. If it's unpleasant, we're not trying to push it away. We're just being with it, offering it a home for it to exist. I often think of my emotions and the feeling energy in my body as like small children, my children. That if I think about what would be the kindest way to meet them with my speech and let that become a felt way of meeting them? A willingness to listen, even if they're screaming. Willingness to listen if they're crying. Just a willingness to show up for them as they are. And so we'll rest like this. We'll practice like this for a few minutes. And if the feelings change and a louder voice comes in, just be with that. If fear and resistance come, those are also feelings. Feel those. We just let the awareness follow whatever feelings are popping up for us, whatever sensations or emotions. all the while preserving awareness of the experience. And awareness, like one hand shaking the other, just gently meets the feeling in the body. 
and we fully feel. So this is like a story that unfolds within the body. Every time you notice yourself analyzing that, just drop the analysis, go back to the feeling, even if it's very subtle, it's almost like a cloud, like you're trying to grab a cloud. Don't try to grab it, just be with it. Move with it. Whatever happens, happens. There's no experience that's correct here or incorrect. Just as what it is, and we bear witness to that with non-judgment and awareness. So since there's nothing we're trying to solve, fix, manipulate, or change here, it's like an open-ended process, an open-ended conversation with our emotions, with our feeling world. So because of time, you're going to have to take this conversation home. But I really urge you to keep having this conversation. And the more and more we make this conversation part of our everyday. Not only can we heal, wounded emotions, wounds in the body, 
we start to come into new perspectives, new ways to relate and see our environment, rather than our inner environment being a threat, it can be a friend. Rather than our inner environment being something we need to medicate or get rid of, it can become the ground for our wisdom to grow. Okay, so thank you so much. Um, Y'all have been very patient with me <laughs> as I rant here. Um, so we got a bit of time uh, for anything that's up for you, anything that uh, you'd like to discuss further, or you had any uh, questions about, or you just want some clarification on. I'm also really curious, um, what sort of pop for you within this material? What, what's up for you? What's, um, what are you chewing on right now? Yeah, it's challenging. I, I had the same experience when I first started this practice. Um, I would say um, the intention of it is to more just be with whatever's there kind of spontaneously. But I just want to ask you a further question. Once you generated it, like an experience uh, uh, with the thinking mind, were you able to just be with the feeling and not continue to think about it? Or Yeah, but you were trying, right? I was trying, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was always like, am I doing this right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Right? Yeah, so this is kind of the, the, the process of this practice because the majority of us, myself included, we're just not taught how to, how to be with emotions in this kind of way or how to be with the feeling world. And so it's just a process of kind of, uh, it's like a learning process, more or less. Um, I, think, I think you did it fine. It sounds, it sounds like you... I also thought that maybe yeah. as these things occur in my life, to get out of your head and, exactly. and try and yeah. recognize them. Yeah, no, that's the intention. Yeah. Exactly, that's the intention. And here we're just practicing it formally, kind of. And, um, and then so for some of you, something just might not have been up. You know, you, maybe even just a pleasant feeling or just a neutral feeling. But we can still practice this open allowing without judgment. And then you're exactly correct. It's, it's the, the practice for in the moment. When we're in the, on the 405 and someone cuts us off, right? Or whatever the situation is. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of a. I mean, like heart rate and breathing. And yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That's it. And then we just keep going. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There, if you get a curiosity going like that, where you just become more and more curious about the experience, um, that's it, because that's where the joy comes from in it. You know, for me, it wasn't like that at first. It was like, I didn't even know the. I didn't even know how to feel. It was more, I know how to, th I know how to th think about my feeling, right? I, I could think about my feeling. Yeah, really common. 
if you keep going, it, it'll, it'll, it'll shift. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that question. for sharing that. Yeah. So when I identify the feeling, and I tried not to label it, um, but as I became aware of it, then it dissolved. Mm. So then I was back to, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be feeling feelings. Um, so if it's a meditation on feelings and, and feeling dissolves as awareness is directed, mm -hmm. do you then suggest we bring another feeling up or we're done? No, no, no. Just, just be with, uh, just be with, there's always feeling, for instance, like, so there might be the illusion that one feeling is going away and then there's no feeling, right? It just means that particular feeling maybe hid or something happened. And I'll give you a little story in a second why, possibly. But uh, a fun story. But um, yeah, then you, you just simply wait and rest in the body and then another feeling arises. And so it's constant awareness of whatever wants to arise. And sometimes I sit, there's really not much, but there is a feeling, you know, there is something, but it can be very subtle, or I'm just paying attention more to just the, the raw feeling or um, sense of touch in the body. So I kind of use that, as, maybe that's a good thing to uh, say out loud. I kind of use that as an anchor. So the, the, the sense of touch is like the anchor and then I'm always letting the awareness kind of open up deeper or allowing whatever wants to come deeper. But yeah, things will hide. Sometimes when we're kind of, when we come in with too much awareness, it, it's like a hermit crab, just like, whoop, and like goes back in, you know? And so uh, one of my teachers, he uses, I love saying this because it's a funny example, but sorry, it's, it's only for the, actually, maybe it could be for the women in the room. You guys can decide. Um, it's sort of like, if someone walks in front of you while you're peeing, you stop peeing, you know? <laughs> Not because you're embarrassed, it's just like, you know? So sometimes when awareness becomes aware of something, it kind of disappears. <laughs> I like that example. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, a good image mentally, right? Because yeah. in India, people like, uh, they pee in open fields and things like that. That's, that's why I think it comes up. Yeah. Yeah, in a bathroom stall, it wouldn't work so well. As an analogy. Just reminded of you know how important like the kindness piece is. Yeah. Because as we were going through, it was interesting the last couple, just the last day or two, I had this experience where it kind of triggered like some like, judgment and some um, guilt and whatnot. But then I noticed how all these other past memories start to come up, you know? Yeah. So it's almost like once those, neur those, those neuronal pathways are open, they all kind of start flooding in. And then I was noticing the tension of that in the body, but, mm. but the kindness piece is so huge, you know? And I think when you mentioned like one hand holding the other, you know, for me there was like a felt sense of, oh, just softening around yeah. it. So not just 
Yeah, it's so helpful not just to feel it, but invite that. Like, how are we feeling it too, right? Exactly, and I think here's the piece that's really unique in this practice, this particular kind of a mindful body practice, is the kindness is the non-judgment. It's not bringing in, oh, like, feel better, honey, or like, you know, this, you weren't saying that, but just want to be clear for everyone. Yeah. It's a really unique compassion because the compassion is in the very act of touching it, meeting it, and dropping the need to, for it to do something different. And so, for me, that was a completely different kind of kindness, because usually I'm used to a kindness where it's like, oh, hey, and it's like a smile, and you, like our meta practice, where it's like, may you be well. That's all wonderful. It's just different than what this is, yeah. And the, the meeting it, there's that softness. Or exactly, or yeah. The meeting itself is the kindness, yeah. And the non-judgment. Often my teacher says about this practice, um, my main teacher, uh, Sony Ramshay, he says, the kindness to the feeling is the non-judgment. The kindness to ourselves is awareness. Because you can see why. Because when we're not aware, we just get hijacked. And it's not kind. Because we're just, we are the anger, or we are the craving, or we are the low self-worth, or whatever, right? Our anxiety. So the kindness to ourselves is the awareness is there, right? That's the key to this practice. The awareness and the dropping the judgment. And just being. But like this gentleman said, it's, it's a process we enter into. So don't expect it to happen right away. It's, it's, it, this, it's, it's a practice. So we have to engage it and practice it. And over time, we start to open up. But there are certain days where I've, I'm just surprised by something. I've been doing this practice for eight years. It really helped me a lot. Especially my anxiety and especially a lot of the hollow, self, low self-worth I've, I've dealt with a lot of my life. Um, but it surprises me sometimes where I'm just like, I'm busy and then a really strong reaction comes to something and then two minutes later I'm like, oh yeah, I should probably meet that like in a different way, you know? Because right away resistance, our habit is to resist so much when something's painful, right? It's always after the fact, if you recognize Yeah, exactly. So that's a good thing, no? Yeah. At least you recognize Exactly, yeah, yeah. We have no choice. It's like a, it's like a delayed reaction. Like I, I, I look at like, if I had a little brother, I didn't, but if he, like, if he, like, hit me with a, you know, whiffle bat or whiffle, what do you call it, like a, in the head, and then it's like, he already went and ate lunch, and then you react, you know? But it's something. You're on the right track, right? <laughs> and eventually you can catch his bat before he, before he whacks you. Sorry, I don't know where that image came from. <laughs> it just came into my mind. I've been staying with my friend and his kids, so I think that's why I thought of that. <laughs> but they don't do that. They're nice kids. So what else is coming up for you all? Um, I really enjoy Q&A because this is the time where we can really dig into the meat of these things, right? And really where, where it's meeting you, personally. I guess I didn't know for sure if I was doing it right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's hard. Trying to connect it to something. Like, oh, this happens. 
It's hard. There's a, I'm the first one to say it's really <laughs> effing hard. I yeah. to, you know, mentally, I wanted to solve it. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. Thanks for, thanks for, because that's going to help others who are having the same experience. That's, that's it. I mean, and again, it's sort of like, I think in general, uh, it's a good thing to approach this way because, um, when we approach meditation too, we often approach it from the, the, the way we approach a lot of things culturally and, and socially, which is this idea of like, okay, I have to, if, if they're telling me to do this, it means I have to obtain it right now, right? And then it's connected to, connected to perfectionism and all these things. And so, um, and it's funny because I, I often think, I don't know many people, if you were like learning the piano or something, and then they're like, they just get really pissed off they can't play like Chopin right away. I don't know a lot of people like that who would get really pissed off, uh, like a sane person, you know? And then, uh, <laughs> but, but when it comes to meditation and these kinds of things, we, it, we have this, myself included, you know, this really strong habit. And so it's almost like working, a big part of the practice is just working with that habit of wanting the result of it quicker, you know? And that's why this practice is kind of a, the Aikido of meditations. You all know what Aikido does? Where you flip your opponent with, with their own energy, right? You don't have to do anything. I don't know, I don't know if I believe those YouTube videos where they, where like uh, they'll show an Aikido master and like someone runs at him or her and then they just go like this and then the person like flies over there. <laughs> I think that's a little fake. But, but supposedly a master of this, you know, someone will come at them and they'll do something where they, they expend very little energy yet the person ends up over there, right? So they've disarmed their opponent. So this is kind of an Aikido, but we're not intending the Aikido, that's why. Because we're not intending to flip the emotion, right? We, we can end up, like for me, anxiety sometimes is just like, okay, hey, what's up, man? Like, you know, it feels like that, literally like, I'm, oh, hey, how's it going? Like, like my neighbor who's a little bit weird just showed up, to, you know, and, he, and, and I'm like, hey, what's up, man, you know? But you kind of like, you've grown okay with him doing that, you know? So eventually the practice becomes that, and then it's almost like, it doesn't matter. Oh, you thought of someone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, that, so that it doesn't even matter if it's there or not. You know, but that takes practice, right? So it's kind of like this, we're entering this process of something. I got to say, um, I think this is the best practice to interrupt some of the most destructive things in our, in our so, uh, social systems right now. Uh, um, mainly like perfectionism and, and hollowness and... Um, the kind of burdens we experience from, from a highly commodified culture. Um, this really, really works. This really works, yeah. Uh, let alone with just mm, wounds and, and traumas. This can really help as well, yeah. yeah. This, this is an, um, what, one that I've had many, many times in the past uh, where you have your own personal heat wave that comes. And I think the tendency is to, like, where you want to take everything off. Like, many times yeah. I've been meditating, I throw my blanket off of it. And then, you know, <laughs> a minute later, you're cold. And because yeah. you're so you feel, so I got to the point where the heat wave would come, and I could feel my body on fire, you know, and I could almost feel the sweat. And i just sit there and really watch it. Mm. Watch the tingling of it and the, and the feeling of it and, and thinking, and, and also knowing this is not going to last. I mean, this is, and 
and then it's it's so interesting how it just disappeared mm. and it was just the neatest thing so every time I get it now I just think oh this is fun to watch because it's going to go away cool I mean, yeah. just <laughs> cool thanks for sharing that yeah yeah and if it doesn't go away then you throw your covers <laughs> <laughs> Thank but you. that was more yeah. physical. I mean, I no, I understand, yeah. Just, no, but it's fine. Like, it's really inviting anything. Yeah. Because it's the feeling... Or whatever, yeah, because yeah, the feeling world, I didn't say it, I usually say it in the guided meditation, but feeling world includes, um, like, physical sensation like that. Yeah. It includes um, emotional, not the cognitive parts of emotions, but the felt parts of emotions, other sensation, and really what we end up getting to here as the awareness strengthens is what we call um, subtler ener energy body. Uh, sensations, which are connected to the, the subtle body, uh, which is something uh, in Vajrayana Buddhism, basically, where it's, a, it's what interfaces between the physical body and the mind. And so we start to connect with that, where uh, from, from this perspective um, in pedagogy, a lot of our um, emotional wounds are stuck in that part of the body, because they're non-physical, but they are something that gets stuck, right? So this is why somatic practices work so well. Yeah. Well, that's all part of cell memory, right? I mean, everything your cells absorb. We would say in the, the yeah, we'd say in the Vajrayana tradition, it's it's not the cell is still a physical matter. This is energy matter. Okay. Yeah, so it's non-physical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But again, there could be some differing opinions on that, and I'm sure it's stored in other places too. I mean, I got a, yeah. Anyways, yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Cheryl was bringing up restlessness, and yeah. I've been working with restlessness a lot. And that's, is that considered a feeling also? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's similar to what Christine was saying. It's like, yeah. you know, after working with it for a long time, I, like, recognize it, and I know, oh, that's, you know, I, I am labeling it, which I guess I shouldn't be well, labeling I mean, it, but, you know, noticing it and saying, you know, that's, yeah. it's, and it, it does dissipate. I think after, after the quite a while. yeah after the practice you're welcome to la labeling is a really good technique. It's just in this practice we're not because sometimes the the cognitive habit uses that as a subtle manipulation. Because once it's labeled, oh yeah, I got it. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm all. You know what I'm saying? That can. Right. It's very subtle. And again, you have to figure that out for yourself. For me personally, I realized I'm so analytical that when I was first starting this practice and for the years afterwards. Um, I would label to make myself feel better instead of like just dropping completely into the experience and letting it be what it is. And it's a real subtle line. But labeling in general is okay. And, and after the meditation, it could be useful because, you know, often with this practice, um, I don't want to feed you guys too much because I want you to experience it. But um, what can happen is a deeper kind of wisdom and knowing that we maybe have never felt before. And I am... I am assuming this is something connected to, uh, uh, you know, like um, cultures that aren't so cognitive. Uh, some some indigenous cultures, they they have where they can develop a type of knowing and wisdom that's not a cognitive knowing. So, for instance, one of my teachers who is from Tibet, and uh, uh, um, he's kind of very earthy person. <laughs> he he once told us when we were in a group teaching. He said, he said you. Well, the translator translated it wrong. She said, he said, you people think too much, which is kind of like pretty harsh, and <laughs> you know. But then someone else told me who spoke Tibetan in the room, that's not, not what he said. What he really, the connotation was more that our worldview is through the thinking mind. And so he was implying Im Im implicitly there's another way to see the world that's not only through the thinking mind. In Buddhism, we would say you could see the world through the feeling 
and eventually we develop a kind of uh, yeshe or wisdom or a prajna that actually sees. So for an enlightened being, like a, now I'm getting into metaphysics, but for an enlightened being like a Buddha, they don't see through the thinking mind. They don't see with the eyes. They see through wisdom. So anyways, it, 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 to me that was quite, to th- experience that and to reflect on it is quite powerful because it means we don't have to be in our thinking mind all day long to be uh, uh, engaged. You know, we can engage with the body, with the feeling. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. How are we doing on time? Maybe one, if there's one yeah. Part. I had kind of an interesting experience. Um, I came in with a lot of energy, but like a lot of anxiety and wide awake. And mm. as they, we started going in or started calming down, I was overwhelmed with fatigue. Mm to the point where I was getting anxiety trying to keep myself awake mm. in that. And I finally just was like, never mind. And I completely nodded off. So I don't know, I mean... During the, during the second practice. Yeah, I completely yeah. nodded off and I woke myself up by like... <laughs> good, good, good. Really good. Oh. Yeah, because that means you're, the, the energy, I'm not going to say exactly, but because um, we're working with the body in this way, uh, anxiety and, and energy is connected to the what we call the lum or the wind energy that for a lot of us is excessive in the head and, and heart and also produces a lot of stress and anxiety for us. So it, it, if, it, if you started to calm and fall asleep from that, it's good because it made it means it started to go down. So this could be a yeah, this could be a really good practice for you. And that's okay if that happens initially because it's what needs to happen within the body because it's resetting itself. Yeah, from constantly being like this. I'm the same way. And, and so for me, I notice when I get a little, when, I, when it drops and I get a little sleepy, it's a good sign usually, yeah. yeah. Eventually it'll change and then you won't get sleepy and you'll be able to just be with other things, yeah. <coughs> good. So, I just got a question about you personally. Sure. So in your practice, do you chant in Tibetan with 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 which book? Yeah, the oh, the Pecha. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. I chant. Yeah, I chant prayers, but usually the ones I've memorized. And then um, I don't have a Pecha. I have it on a computer. So then, yeah, <laughs> or my iPhone. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. And how do you feel about people, um, you know, kind of collecting initiations into the different? Um. Yeah, I mean, implied in your question is um, like a slight neg- uh, negativity. I, not that you should, I agree with you. Like, collecting is probably never a good thing when it comes to spirituality because it's sort of like, this is my perspective, right? Uh, because it's sort of like, like a baseball card collection. And it's a very commodified way of dealing with these things that are, that are uh, inner technologies for awakening. So then I think, personally, like, I think we should go back to the, so which, can I give some context for everyone in the room? Is that okay? So she's talking about tantric empowerments into, um, we, we get a certain form of, a, of, a, of a, an awakened form, right? Like, for instance, the Buddha or another kind of awakened form, like the medicine Buddha or Tara, the female energy of, of enlightened female energy. And we start to associate more and more with that form through a practice. And we call this bringing in the fruition of Buddhahood into the moment as we practice it. 
so uh, people can go around collecting empowerments uh, because they feel good and you know you get the all incense bells and whistles of Tibetan Buddhism and lamas on thrones and all that kind of stuff and so it, it can become kind of addiction but it's also a wonderful thing and in Tibet it's the way we impart these you know in, in Tibetan Buddhism it's the way we impart them um, but what I would say is it can also become kind of like an addiction to the experience of that and then people never put the practice, <laughs> put it into practice. And some people do. So I like the way of Indian Vajrayana Buddhism, where in Indian Vajrayana Buddhism, as far as we know through the history, they, um, they practiced one deity. They didn't practice hundreds. And so there's a saying when a Tisha, I think it's a Tisha, who's a 10th century Indian uh, master who, who helped to disseminate Buddhism from India to Tibet. He said, he said wow, Tibetans practice hundreds of deities and don't get enlightened. Indians practice one and get enlightened. <laughs> so it's kind of like, and again, that's not to say practicing hundreds is not good either. It just depends on the person. Depends on the intention and mentality. Why are you getting this, right? And if you really understand that, like, you know, I have lots of uh, connections with different lamas and different teachings, and some of that is just to get kind of into the lineage, and some of it in the beginning was definitely just grasping and collecting things. And it didn't you know, maybe there's some blessing there, which is positive. But, you know, now I just practice one thing and it's pretty simple and, you know, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to do a dedication quickly. Okay. Maybe, yeah? Or do you want to do the announcement and then we'll dedicate? No, we can do it. Okay. So, um, thank you all so much. <laughs> We're going to end here. Um, just like I like to guide a motivation and intention in the beginning. What I'd like to do now is just a, a dedication. And what it is, is a, it's kind of a formal sealing of all the wonderful energy we brought with us here, all the wonderful energy we cultivated here, the chewing that happened, the meditation that happened, all of that, right? And this also includes, by the way, if you didn't agree with something, if you had a hard time, if you wished you just stayed home, it's still useful. I, I'm being, I'm being, I'm not being, I'm not joking, right? Because we're here and something's happening, something's moving, right? So it doesn't always have to be like, woo, like blissful and positive. It can be like a transformation doesn't always look the way we think it's going to look. Okay? So just closing our eyes just briefly, what we're going to do is imagine all of the good energy, effort, the qualities we're wishing to develop within us, as a ball of light at the center of our heart in whichever color we wish. And as we rest in that compassionate wisdom represented as this light, we're now going to share the light of ours, what we've cultivated here in this room and elsewhere, with others. So that light, with that intention, starts to grow bigger, filling our bodies. Starts to expand into the room, touching our neighbors, touching the other practitioners in the room here. And as our lights commune and connect, they form one massive light that begins to not be contained within this room and begins to expand filling the area of Redondo Beach, expanding out into Los Angeles, expanding out into the Pacific Ocean, 
And as it expands, each being that it touches, not only does it present them with our own merit, our own goodness, our own virtue, our wealth, all of the good, goodness in our life, all of the joy. It also relieves their suffering. And we can even imagine that it eliminates their suffering. They become awakened by this light. This further expands, filling all of America, moving into Mexico, Central America, South America, maybe Canada if they're nice to us. Joking. Filling Canada, North America. And as this light expands around the world, we can imagine the whole world alight with it, like a Christmas bulb. And not being able to be contained within the earth, it expands into the universe, expanding into infinite space. And we just spend a moment resting in that infinite space, letting go of the visualization, letting go of the evening and practices. Just coming back to the body and resting in that inner spaciousness. Okay, so thank you all so much.